With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Isagenics. If you're looking to make a change in your health or in the health of somebody you care for, consider the Isagenics line of nutritional products. From bars and shakes to supplements, you will never have to sacrifice convenience and taste for health. Learn more at bethechange.isagenics.com. Welcome, everybody, to Uncorking a Story. My name is Michael Carlin, and today I have the pleasure of sharing with you my interview with GM O'Connell, who is one of the founders of the world's first interactive agencies, Moda Media. Now, here's my Moda Media story. I graduated from college in May of 1996 and took a job at a very well-known advertising agency in New York that was owned by a holding company named True North Communications. Now, at that time, I was commuting a few hours a day to do what I thought was a very uninspiring job and was barely making enough money to afford my commute, let alone an apartment. So I was back to living at my parents' house, which uh, for a young 20-something isn't uh, necessarily the most um, exciting uh, exciting way to spend uh, your evenings, but uh, I digress. Uh, one day, I'm sitting at my desk um, in New York, and a memo came across it uh, stating that True North Communications just did a deal with an interactive marketing firm in Connecticut called Moda Media. So I went over to their website, and a little voice inside my head uh, was whispering to me, this is where you need to be. And um, I listened to that little voice, and I was fortunate enough to work things out, so I made a, a transition over to, uh, to Moda Media. And I spent about three years there, and the three years I spent there, I have to tell you, were probably the most exciting and fun times of my career because, you know, I was very young, 
Um, everyone I was working with was very young, and we were all kind of laser-focused on this mission of, of blazing new trails in interactive marketing and interactive media. We were all working very hard, but uh, to be completely transparent, we were probably playing even harder. Um, and now, unfortunately, modem as we knew it uh, no longer exists, but recently the original partners of the agency threw a party for uh, our 25th anniversary, and I had the opportunity to uh, reconnect with many old friends at that party, um, and many of whom, I'll tell you, have gone on to uh, start their own firms and uh, remain successful in, uh, in interactive marketing, which is, I think, quite cool. Um, anyway, at the, that night, I asked, uh, I asked GM, uh, who's one of the founders, of course, if he would uh, be willing to be interviewed for this podcast, and he graciously, graciously said yes and offered to host me at his home in Connecticut. So uh, in this interview, we talk about um, you know what it was like to uh, start a business at 26. Uh, we talk about the growth of the agency. We also get into a little bit about uh, what post-agency life is like. Now, during the interview, you also hear from one of his dogs who, uh, let's just say, refused to leave us alone and uh, made me throw a bone for her uh, about uh, 20 times, and I'm still washing her slobber off my hands. But, uh, again, I digress. Um, so I hope you enjoy listening to this interview. I hope uh, you enjoy, enjoy it as much as we enjoy doing it. I'm going to apologize right now for the wind, uh, wind noise you'll occasionally hear uh, during this interview, but it was just way too nice of a day to sit inside. Um, so, you know, without further delay, I'll, uh, I'll give you my interview with GM O'Connell. So what time, what did you do? Did you end up staying? You drove home, I take it. Uh, yeah, I, I was there, uh, till about 11. Once the buses started going, I, I uh, made my, uh, I made you didn't my head getaway. down to the duck. It was it was very tempting, but uh, yeah. I had a lot of fatherly responsibilities on Saturday morning. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> the duck, I would say, uh, like a hundred people made it to the duck. That's a good crowd. Yeah, I. Uh, and there was at, when the duck uh, closed down, there were still about twenty people left. I talked to Borsari on Wednesday, and he mentioned Borsari was in fine form. He had a uh, he had a late evening. Well, early I spent morning. the evening. Yeah, so I. I Cheers. Uh, I was one of the crew. It was him, me, Diego from Argentina. Uh-huh. I met Diego. Uh, who else was a part of this? Uh, Michelle Petretta was driving. <laughs> a couple of the girls. Can't remember who. who God, I can't remember who else it was. There were about eight of us. That went over to Penny's, not Penny's Diner, over to oh. uh, the uh, Sherwood Diner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Off of 18? Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. So, yeah, uh, this is an informal thing. So, I, I do this with people I think have interesting stories to tell. So, uh, yeah, I got to figure. So, what do you have? A blog you put this stuff up on? Yeah, it's a blog, and then I, um, you know, it, it, it uh, gets broadcast as a podcast. It's up in iTunes, and right. you know, people can download it. Cool. It's pretty fun. I started it because you know, people hire me to interview other people for a living, right. and they're always asking me to send them a tape of what I do. But a lot of the work I do is front end innovation stuff that I can't really share with anybody because it's. It's about product ideas that aren't on the market yet. Yeah, 
So I don't send tapes out. So I figured, well, maybe I'll just record myself interviewing other people where there's no, you know, business conflicts. Right. And uh, I said, well, podcasting is a pretty popular format. Why don't I give that a shot? So I started doing that. And it's been good. I don't make any money doing it, but that's not the point. You guys drink some wine and have some fun. Well, that's why listen I call it a, a... Listen to a dog chew a... Chew a bone, chew a, chew a plastic right. bone. We'll try and edit that out. Oh, that's got a lot of nice slobber on it too. So uh, I wanted, I wanted to, to start off by talking about like the early days of modem. So in 1987, I was just a kid, you know. I think I was in high school listening to Iron Maiden albums, but I suspect you were doing something, something else in '87. What was, what was '87 like? And no, I was pretty much right there with you with Iron Maiden. You like the Iron Maiden, or uh, probably not, right? I picture you more as a... Uh, no, Dave Grohl fan, man. Dave Grohl. Well, you know, he did make an appearance. Yeah, he it. did. That was pretty impressive. Somebody got their picture taken with him. Carter. Right? Mike Carter. Is that who it was? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, no, I don't know. So, in 87... company I was at. Where were you at? I was at, at CompuCard, which is now known as Sendin. No, which is now known as Athenian, which became known as Sendin. But it merged with a company called HFS. And uh, a lot of those guys are now in jail, unfortunately. I remember there were some lawsuits about that. There was massive years. accounting fraud that occurred after I left, and they, they merged these two companies together. But anyway, the claim to fame that at the time was called CUC International, and CUC was the original, e well, one of the original e-commerce companies. All right, we should uh, get rid of the dog. And um, how old were you at the time? I was just when I start. Well, I was 24 when I started at CUC, and tw just turned 26. Uh, had just turned 26. Uh, basically, started on my 26th birthday. Yeah. Motomedia Moda started. Motomedia. It was October 19th. Uh, um, my birthday is October 18th. So we started October 19th, which was the day the stock market crashed. Went down by like 500 points. The guys were running. In fact, we went to Kurt Shelton's office, who is now in Danbury, a different office, um, and told him we were leaving, Doug and I. And um, uh, he didn't really care because, like, you know, the world was on fire. Right. And... Um, uh, you know, we left that day. You know, they said, okay, thank you very much. What you're doing is sort of competitive, but we wish you the best. Nice guys. And um, that's when we started Motive. So what, what was it, you know, at 26, what was it that made you say, you know, screw it, I'm going to leave this job and just we're going to start yeah. a new business? What, what was that? Yeah, well, I mean, we had planned it for a while. You know, Doug was the guy who knew how to build all this stuff, and I was a guy who had nothing better to do. And um, and knew how to kind of sell it and get people excited about it, so it was kind of clear to anybody who was paying attention, I guess, not that many people were paying attention that yeah, this was the the way of the future. But it was very unclear how long it would take, and it was extremely clear that it wasn't going to happen in the next you know week or two. Um, you know, you had dial-up modems, you had tiny little screens, 40 characters of text, monochrome, no graphics, all online services. But, you know, you could get a machine to talk back at you. 
That was like when War Games was the same. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. You remember that, that movie? That was like yeah, the Matthew same. Matthew Broderick, Ali Sheedy. Yeah, 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 same time period. I, that was probably maybe even a little earlier, but, you know, in yeah. that in that mid, a Whopper computer. mid to early 80s. Yeah, all that shit, you oh, know, yeah. K-Pro. And, and so anyway. Yeah, um, the old 400 baud modem that he put 300, his phone on top of it. Acoustic coupler. I yeah. used to go around and sell people on the fact that people would shop this way. Because I managed this thing called CompuMall, which is the first ever electronic shopping mall. And I remember going to this guy, Bernie Fywis, who ran um, uh, Neiman Marcus's, you know, high, you know uh, their, their, uh, their catalog. And the Neiman Marcus catalog was like the most famous catalog. You know, they'd have their Christmas catalog yeah. with some outrageous gift in it that nobody would buy, but it would always get all the press because it cost a million dollars, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I said, you know, <clears throat> the, the come on was, you know, I'm here to show you how we're going to change the way America shops. You know, <laughs> you get this acoustic coupler thing out, and you put in, uh, you put, you know, right on his desk. And it had fax paper, thermal paper inside. Yeah. So it would, uh, it was a thing a journalist used actually to uh, send their stories in. But you would connect it, you could, so that instead of having a screen, it had paper. So all the shit you did. And then right after that, the first, there wasn't even a laptop invented at that point. There was the sewing machine compacts, but those were too heavy to, you know, those weren't really the portable, but they were like transporting. Right. So anyway, so that was it. So you, 300 baud modems, no graphics. Awful, uh, you know, it took forever just to log into the thing, right. you know, and in the, you know, but people, you know, a lot of guys thought, okay, well, this is the beginning of something, and you know, like he signed up for it, you know, I mean, they all they had to do was give us a cut of what they were doing, but you know, but it was funny this <clears throat> this winter, right before Christmas, this, you know, Christmas season, I was in my car, and they had a story on like Bloomberg News where they interviewed a guy at one of. Uh, Amazon's distribution centers, and he's like, yeah, today we ship, you know, I forget what it was. It was 60 million. It could have been six, it could have been 600 million. It was a shitload of, you know, oh, well, yeah. around 100 million, let's say, worth of merchandise that day. That day. And, uh, and a month for us was like 60,000 at right. best. Right. That, that was a huge month. Yeah. You know, so I think it was 60 million to 60,000. In one day versus one month. But that's, you know, but that was, what, that was, shit, well, it was 25 years ago. Yeah. You know. And, um, so anyway, so, having that job, being at this company, I didn't like the company that much, and thinking that this was the wave of the future, and then writing a business plan saying this this mall that I'm managing is never going to go anywhere because we actually charge people to shop, we have to change the business model, they were a membership organization that actually, you know, could convince people to pay him forty dollars a year to actually have the pleasure of using this thing, and uh, they didn't want to change the model. So I said, "Well, I don't want to manage it, so I'm going to leave." And and uh, you know, I'd already I had my own. You know, when I was a kid, I found golf balls and sold them. So the the idea of working for myself was not intimidating at all. And you young, you were young at, at the time. I mean, no yeah. family at that point, right? No, 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 were you no. married at that 26? Or? No, no. I didn't even know what marriage was. You were hanging out with Michael Bolton's marriage wife. Marriage sounded like a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so there was little risk in it for you. There was no risk. It was, it was I mean, it was, uh, do this, if it doesn't work, I'll go to law school. I wasn't going to go to business school. I had no desire to go to business school. But I thought maybe law would be interesting. And uh, so, you know, I mean, but we never looked back. So you said, you know, you, the idea of working for yourself wasn't foreign to you. You, you started, what, doing golf balls? Uh, 
when I was 10, I found golf balls at the local golf course, you know, that my parents were trying to get me to take golf lessons. I didn't like to golf. So Where was that? Was that around here? In Vermont. In Vermont. And then I had a house painting company I started in when I was... Actually, that's a much better story than modem. I started this house painting company when I was like 14. And then I did it all through college. Paid, I had to pay for a lot of my college. And then um, my brothers took it over. So it ran from like 1977 or 78, let's say 78, to about 2000, probably. Wow. It, it ran forever. Well, that might be a lie. My brother Brendan would have gotten that up. Yeah, he would have graduated college '97, so yeah, it ran for 20 years. So he would have did he did he graduate? O O'Connell Associates. From no, you know, Brendan never got his degree. He never did. So I remember he was working at Modem when I started yeah. Yeah. in '96, '97. Yeah. He was already yeah. there. No, he kind of, you know, I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> <laughs> He's on like the eight-year plan. He never quite finished it. It's funny. My first job ever was uh, shanking golf balls. At Sterling Farms Golf Course in Stanford. Stanford, yeah. So yeah. we, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a couple of us noticed that the um, the guy, you know, the, the moving target on the range, you know, in the tractor. Well, he's a, yeah, he's definitely a target. You know, he's, a, he's a total target. Yeah. But he can't get all the balls, especially those that go the on the sides. Yeah. Yeah. So we convinced the local pro to pay us like three bucks an hour or whatever just to plunk. So we get the hand plunkers out there and we did that you know, a few nights a week. Live? And, uh, it was live. Well, we had to Guys start. For you? We had to start at seven, and we were on the other side of a, um, a fence. So whatever balls went over this fence, the screen, and then down on either the the ninth. Whereas the driving range is between the the ninth uh, tee right, and the tenth tee. So you weren't. You were out. So we were kind of out of line of fire, but there were some jerks who didn't get us. Who yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's just human nature. Yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, so, I, yeah, that was what I did, and then I did that, and then I had some shitty, uh, one other crappy job working for this company called Productivity Inc., which brought in all this just-in-time and quality improvement techniques from Japan, right? which had gotten them from guys like Edward Deming 40 years earlier after right. World War II, and, uh, and uh, I got fired from that job. Why'd you get fired? Two reasons, I think. One, uh, I didn't do a good job, and two, <laughs> I was sleeping with the graphic artist over there who was really fishing in the uh, fun. fishing in the company pond. Yeah, I think it kind of got them upset. You know, that's why we never had sort of a anti fraternization, you know, policy, policy at, at Modem. Uh, or if we did, I don't think anybody ever paid attention. Well, to I, it. I can tell you, there was a fair <laughs> amount of people who were breaking that rule yeah, if, yeah. if there was, was such encouraged. a policy. Marilyn Fiddler would have had a field day. Yeah. Um, so is, is that, you know, I mean, you, you build a successful company. You're building another one. Is, is that, like, one of the keys to being a successful entrepreneur, not being afraid to to get fired from somewhere or not being content at sort of a uh, – I call them real jobs because I don't consider that I have a real job. but Like not a being salary job. Like a salary job, yeah, yeah. Not being afraid to get fired, is that – you know, you know, for me, a salary job, and I can only speak for myself because it's, you know, it's obviously what's right for most people. For me, a salary job didn't wasn't motivating. I didn't, I didn't feel like, you know, it just it didn't motivate me. And I kind of liked what, you know, the, the whole the, nowadays entrepreneurialism. And I don't even like that word so much because it really does stand for, I think, you know, this whole notion of going out 
raising money. You know, there's a real formula now. I mean, not even these guys like with Lean Startups and all this. You know, there's this real formula that you could follow. Back when we started Modem, there weren't even, you know, VC companies in this neck of the wood. I don't think there were any. Event. I mean, if there were, we never heard of them. It was different times. And so to me, what it means is you're not afraid or you like to uh, eat what you kill, you know? Right. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the only way I can explain it. And I like to do that, you know? And you get to keep the money that the company, I mean, it's, you know, it's motivating. Um, so with the, you know, with that, so it's 87, the, the market crashes, it's you and Doug. How, how long before you hire employee number three? like three or four months. We, Doug and I were trying to figure out that out the other the other night. He he claims that we, our first big deal, you know, we, what we did was we went around first all the online services companies and tried to convince them that they needed shopping malls. Well, like Prodigy we go, and CopyServe? And yeah, Prodigy wasn't even around, but CopyServe already had one. Who didn't have one was a company called Delphi. Didn't have right, one. Right. Dow Jones had something called the Dow Jones News Retrieval, which was like the Bloomberg kind of of the day, you know. It was their wire, their wire service. They had a, an online service. Those guys told us to go F ourselves. And In fact, at one point, we were right on the post road, and we had to drive back from Washington one night. We pissed on their sign. Uh, it was really mature. <laughs> you and Doug? They're like, yeah, they had a big, yeah. <laughs> we got out of the park, the car ran over. Fuck you. And urinated all over there. Like, it's you know, it's they like had a rock like and roll granite, story right there. They had a granite sign. Uh, it was at a, yeah, except that he was driving a diesel rabbit. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, but the big one was Genie. So G General Electric had this thing called Genie, which stood for the, the, uh, General Electric Network for Information Exchange. And this guy, Bill Loudon, worked over there. As did, by the way, the funny story there is there's this woman named Jean Wackus, who is now Mrs. Steve Case. And she was the product manager of this division that we worked for to build their shopping mall. So we ended up building... The shopping mall for Gene and this other guy, Jay Ferguson, and Bill was the guy who ran it. And uh, they hired us to, they didn't have a shopping service. You know, they were competing with CompuServe. The whole idea was that they had this, this GEIS, the General Electric Information Service. They were out of Rockville, Maryland. They had all this excess capacity at night because during the day, they're doing all this EDI work. You know, all the, all the, the network, this network was, was full up, but at night, Nobody was using it, so you could come on and use it at night for $5 an hour versus if you want to use it during the day as a consumer. And the fact that people used to pay this is just amazing, yeah. right? And nobody did use it. That was kind of the point. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. So anyway, they needed a shopping service. They were willing to pay us $5,000 a month to provide it to them. We ended up specking out how it would work. Their engineers built it. Dan Lett. Dan with an unpronounceable last name. These are like guys who nobody will ever know, knows about, but they were the guys who were there at the beginning. And, uh, in fact, I still have the original somewhere. I think I still have it. Uh, you know, binder specification of how Genie Mall was going to work. Genie Mall is interesting. It was the first ever. We used email to try to get people to buy stuff. Nobody else had ever done that before. Right. We had banner, like, we had these textual banners and stuff at the top of the shopping mall. So, anyway, so... That was our first big deal when we built the Genie Mall. We got that contract. Doug told me that was like in March of the following year, and that's when we hired Lisa Johnson, who was our first employee. Lisa Johnson. Yeah. Who subsequently, Lisa, if you're listening to this, 
uh, tried to screw us over big time. And if you've hired Lisa, that's a bad idea. <laughs> what did she do? What happened? Can you talk about it? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I guess I can. I'm not going to get sued, am I? I don't know. Well, you and I might. <laughs> um, but I think it was actually Gene. There was another guy that was there. And they basically, Lisa said, I can do this for even less than $60,000 a year. So they hired her to run it because they own the IP and stuff. So we got like a letter one day saying, you're out. And and then Lisa told us, so this is your, your oh, by the way, that's us. Yeah, yeah, Wow. And so at that point, we were getting paid a lot more than that. We had like four or five other people that were working on it. We had to fire everybody. It was like overnight. Uh, and it was incredibly unethical of, of, of General Electric which is a company I would never work for again, ever. Uh, it did at Modem, and they screwed us at Modem. So, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, bad news. And uh, I have a very short list, but G's on it and Lisa's on it. And I would say that's probably the entire list. Um, uh, but anyway, I haven't seen her since then. Doug ran into her at, the, at an airport, he said. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it was Bob. Somebody ran into her at an airport, and I think it was Doug, and, you know, but she was not well liked when that happened, that's for sure. Now, how, how much did you guys struggle when you had to bring on that next person? I mean, it's another headcount, it's a salary. I mean, because I think about this all the time. I'm a company of one, and I would love to bring some people on just to help me out, yeah. but I'm scared to death to do it because I, I take on the responsibility of feeding them and my kids. Well, you see, we, we don't have hearts. Well, you know, like the Tin Man? Yeah. No, I don't know. I, well, hey, when you're when you're that young, you don't think about that kind of stuff. I guess I didn't. I mean, and we didn't hire anybody that had a family. Like Lisa was, you know, nobody with a family would ever come work for us because yeah. we were, you know, the, the risks involved were enormous, right? If you if you looked at it objectively, we didn't think that. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think we just, when we had enough work that we couldn't get done ourselves, we hired another person. Yeah. And if we were, had enough money to pay for it, we never took out loans or anything. We always, you know. It was all self-funded. Yeah. It was all self-funded, yeah. yeah. At what point did you know that, you know, you were going to make it, that you guys were going to be okay, that, you know, this, this was something that could sustain, you know, a group of people for? Oh, probably well after we should have recognized that we, we were doing okay. I used to have this, this way of looking at it. We, we had this way of looking at the business that I, I, I convinced Doug maybe was sort of the right way to look at the business, which was basically how much, how many months out of revenue plus cash in the bank do we have to pay for our, you know, our nut, our overhead. I used to call it being able to come in and use the bathroom. I didn't quite call it that, you know, in the morning. Like, what does that cost a month, right? Like, and how many months out can we go? And I think we felt pretty secure if we had more than four or five months of, of that going on. And then at some point, you know, uh, I guess you never really have more than that if you're a people-based business. But you get to, you know, get recurring revenues and you get a brand and the phone starts calling you as opposed to you calling with it. And, uh, you know, so I would say that wasn't until six or seven years later that I think we got semi-comfortable with where we were and that it, it all happened so fast that, right you know, you know right. we were we were in the right place for a long time before you know we got the business became quote unquote you know 
hugely successful. And then at what point does, because I remember, if I have my history right, True North comes along. Because I was, I mean, so my history with modem, I was working for Foucault and Belding in New York. It was my first job out of school. I was commuting, you know, three hours a day, making absolutely no money. Like, I was, I was as close to an hourly employee as you can get. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Brian Rafferty, if you're listening, you were a great boss, but the job sucked. I mean, I was, I was estimating call volume for AT&T um, on their 1-800, I don't know, if it wasn't 1-800-COLLECT, but what is 1-800, the Paul Reiser commercials that were running at the time. This yeah. is 96. And I got a memo at my desk about, you know, the comings and goings of True North, and it says, True North makes investment or does something with Moda Media. Yeah. Westport, Connecticut, and I said, "Shit, that's a much better commute <laughs> better than deal. getting on the subway and you know <laughs> yeah. whatever I was doing at the time, living with my parents." And uh, so I, I actually sent an email. I, I went to the website, which uh, which is still living somewhere. I, I saw it's the like on the wayback machine. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I uh, I sent an email to Marilyn Fiddler. I got a reply from a woman named Rose Dory, and she said, oh, come on in, you know, interview. And that's how, I mean, it happened fast for me, but, so that was, so that was 96, 97. Was, is my timeline right? I mean, is that Yeah, we True closed the along? deal with True North. Uh, I always forget myself. Either the final day of 96 or the final day of 97. My, my, I think it was the last day of 97. Seven, because we won the AOR. I think it was. It was. Yeah. It was. I can't remember myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's all right. But why? Why True North? And like, what? What was going on at, at Modem at that time? Where you and Doug and I guess Bob at the time, because he was a yeah. partner then. Yeah. You know, said we need money, or no, was it we, too good to pass up? Or no, no, it, it was. It was the wrong deal for the possibly the right reasons as that whole deal turned out. And I don't want to get into too much of that but because there's a lot of um, the, 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 the thought of doing that deal was we had a leadership position in the industry but we also knew that it, the barriers to entry weren't that big and that there were a lot, there was a lot of competition. You know, that it bubbling started, up. that was yeah. bubbling up. And, you know, already some guys that were further out than us. There was Poppy Tyson that we were, you know, I mean, they were sort of more West Coast, we were more East Coast. There was CKS, which was definitely West Coast, and they did a good job, but they didn't, you know, they they were more full service kind of, you know, they did a lot of, they kind of grew out of desktop publishing. Um, and then there were guys, you know, the, the, all the other guys that you heard of back then. And so for us, we wanted to establish a, we wanted to make sure we held a lead. So the idea was to get big fast, you know, back before that was even really a, a phrase. Uh, and so we were going to, we talked to everybody out there, and what we wanted to do was establish more bulk in the, in the business. Probably a bad idea. Certainly doing the deal with True North turned out to be a, a, a horrible deal. So we do the deal with True North in, like, let's call it the end of 96. We go to war with them for basically two years, 90, right when everything's going crazy. We're just really battling with them. Um, terrible days. I mean, it was like 
that was when I was convinced it was just about trying to make as much money as possible, as fast as possible, so I never had to deal with the guys again. But we, we muddled through it, and then we did the deal with Poppy Tyson, and then about a year later we took it public. So that was in 99, yeah, February of 99. So that's a long process. I mean, that takes, you know, six months of preparation to do, I mean, years of preparation, but six months of sort of technical preparation. Um, you know, running a public company wasn't the funnest thing. That I, I was going to ask because you, you go from a situation where, you know, it's you, Bob, Doug, you know, kind of three partners calling the shots. You can maintain a certain culture in the company, which I want to talk about also. But um, then all of a sudden now you've got, you know, <laughs> Wall Street to deal with. Like how much did that – I don't want to say how much did that suck because I'm sure it was good financially – for a while, but I mean, how, uh, you know, talk to me about the change, the change of yeah, the organization. I, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. Uh, I would say if I was going to do that whole thing all over again, I would have just sold the company. Been sure, you know, I, I think a small professional service company like what we were shouldn't really, they shouldn't be public. We're still a small company. I mean, our peak revenues were $130 million a year, you know, and the, the is all paper. You know, nobody really ever took that much money out of the company. Right. No, you know, you couldn't sell. Uh, I didn't want to sell. I was still always a big believer in it. But you know, so I wrote it up to, you know, on a split basis from eight to fifty, and then back down to two. You know, and then back up to nine or ten, and that's where it all ended. So it wasn't a huge. You know, I mean, I yeah, I made more money than I ever thought I would, but I never, you know, made. You know, private plane money or anything like that from the deal. Well, I mean, um, so, but that wasn't really why. That wasn't why we did it. It became a reason, to be honest with you, after the True North sort of debacle. But it wasn't. You know, the funnest days we ever had at Modem were doing was just doing. You know, it was when you were around. You know, doing, doing great stuff, work. Yeah, stuff that hadn't been done before. That was what I was most proud of. And then, like what I said at the reunion the other night, you know, working with great people was, uh, it was a blast. You know, that was what it was all about. And I think you you appreciate that much more after the fact yeah. than you do probably even at the time. Well, I'd say, I mean, in addition to the great work that, that was done, I mean, you, you look at that reunion and how many people have started their own businesses, you know, how many people, and, and are still actively successfully making a living at, at Interactive. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of success yeah. stories coming out of there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we hired smart people who were highly motivated. And, you know, if they hadn't come to Modem, they would have done it somewhere else. You know, so yeah. I, I don't know. I think, I think what, what, what I will say is that I think for a lot of people, for sure for me, and people tell me this all the time, it was the best work experience they ever had, and they don't anticipate ever having anything close to that ever again. I mean, how could – I mean, I, I don't want to yeah. say how could you, but – you know, for so many of us, I mean, I was a year out of my undergraduate, all of a sudden working in a place that was, you know, full of people like me, to some extent, I mean, who were into technology, you know, when, when everyone else was out playing sports, I was tinkering around with a, a 1,200-baud modem that I bought from, like, Newmark and Lewis or something like that, you know, <laughs> you know, playing around a prodigy. So it, it's like, you know, it was a fun period of time to be in the workforce and to have your first job at something that was so non-traditional. Like my dad wore a suit and tie to work every day for 43 years at the same company. And I just couldn't imagine that being my life. And, yeah. And modem kind of 
you know, it was full of smart people. We worked hard. We played really hard. And we, we felt like we were changing the world for a period of time anyway. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, I think that's probably tr- true. I don't know how much we, you know, it's like one of those things where we were there first. It was going to happen no matter what, but it might as well have been us. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a blast. I mean, there's no question about that. And, you know, yeah, we did stuff nobody had ever done before. And it's different. It's definitely, I think, I get the feeling that, you know, um, it, it would be hard to repeat that those days at all in any kind of an advertising agency type setting these days, whether, you know, no matter what you're doing, you know, you're incrementalizing with social or, or even mobile stuff, you know, whatever's on the cusp isn't really, there's never going to be another time like there was back in 96 or 95, 93, when uh, all of a sudden you could jack any computer into this network and create hyperlinks and all of a sudden you could basically do time and space travel on your computer. I mean, that was the amazing part. Yeah. And now we take that stuff for granted. But that was, you know, that was like, that was, that was the coolest thing ever. Well, I think still back then you had, you still had some control over a message and, you know, some kind of communication. Now it seems like you know, marketers, I think, pretend to have control over it, but, you know, social media is driving a lot. I mean, that's the big buzzword I hear, and you have no control over social media, and it, in my point of view, if you think that you do, if you try too hard with a social media strategy, you know, many times you just wind up falling on your face. Like, you look like you're trying too hard, or, you know, you, you, lose, some, you, you lose some kind of credibility, almost. Well, it's pretty easy to be non-authentic if you're trying to be commercial yeah. on social media, right. right? I mean, it's, it's like, uh, it's very paradoxical. You just, it's, you know, you're trying to achieve something that the, that it wasn't really designed for. Right. Um, it's almost a recipe for failure, I think. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. I've been out of it. I, I just don't know, like, if anybody could look at, um, uh, I mean, I, I really don't know. I have no idea, but, uh, can can anybody point at any you know product launch or you know a serious gain in market share something you know wildly successful um, selling story in the last five years and say that was due to to social or mobile or you know to be honest even sort of the internet I mean I th- I've always said it's much more of a service platform than it is a uh, a marketing communications platform, and I mean, you know, we use it to get things. You know, my all those mantras I used to have. I, you know, to me, they're still, it's still, that's still what it's all about. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I know, one of the things you used to say is, you know, if it's, if you're, if your advertising is so good that it's perceived as a service, then you're using it, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I mean, if you're doing something so good that people want to share it on social media then I think that's that's the best you can hope for. But to to try and be in to try and have some kind of intent around pushing something through social media, I think that's where the difference is, right? Yeah. You know, I mean the guy to ask is probably like a guy like uh Jeff Benjamin, you know, who was at yeah. the, I mean I guess he's the, he was at the, he was at, he was I saw him, the, I saw him. He there. came he was one of the guys that uh, he showed up at a taxi by himself at the diner and then we 
talked to for a long time. I never really knew him all that well, but we had a great conversation. Is he still out in um, Colorado? No, at, no, no. Uh, he's, at, uh, he's at JWT now. They oh, he is. Because yeah. he was out at... He's um, a creative director there. Where was he? What's he that was place? He that Bogan Crispin. Yeah, yeah, Crispin something. Yeah. Porter. Yeah. 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 And uh, I guess he did that chicken thing, which was like a huge deal. Right? right. You know, that was cool. But, I mean, you know, it was unbranded and it was, you know... I mean, but I think he, he's the right guy to talk yeah. to about that stuff, not me. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea. I, you know, look, at I just, it, it, you know, to me, I use it to run my life, but I don't use it to, I had to figure out what to buy. <laughs> but I don't really pay attention to the, to the advertising much. Like the, uh, the one, you know, the stuff that I don't like is the really, and you know, the stuff that we used to, you know, the, the thing nobody knows about modem, actually, probably the, the most interesting thing about modem and the vision we had for it was, you know, we had this thing called the digital loop, you know, which was, you know, all of marketing, all of communications is going to become digital. What we know about people is going to be stored digitally so we can get the right message to the right. You know, we were I'm pretty sure Doug and I were the first people that said that whole thing about Wanamaker's lament of not knowing which half you waste. Digital is going to solve for that, right? I, I know we were the first guys to, to even bring that up. And it's a fool's errand, in my opinion. You know, I, I don't think it works. And I think um, uh, a lot of money's been spent on trying to make that stuff. And at the margins, it works. And I think if you're a direct marketer, it works. But to kind of throw that tech in front of, you know, when you use it to do things like... Um, you know, what was the hot thing? I don't even see it as much on the web anymore. But when I first came back from Argentina, it was the biggest thing. And I, it, used to, it used to hit me everywhere. Maybe they figured out it doesn't work for me, so that's why I don't <laughs> see it anymore. But the, uh, what do you call it when you, there's a, you know, there's an industry term for it where you uh, continually bombard somebody with an ad after they've been to your website. Right, not, not roadblocking, but something. Uh, no, it's... Um, Oh gosh! Annoying, maybe. It's, well, it's free. It's uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's persistent, and it's it's the equivalent of leaving a shopping mall, you know, in a suburbia, walking out to your car, and some guy comes flying out of the, you know, Banana Republic store and latches onto your hood and won't let go, you know. There's a sketch comedy skit in there. Yeah, no, it's like that's what those banners did, and um, what the hell is it called? It's like follow-on advertising or. There's a there's definitely a standard word for it, and apparently that stuff works, you know. Yeah. But it's uh, it's so heavy handed. There's nothing artful about right. any of this stuff. Right. Yeah. So what? Uh, so now, so modem uh, obviously is, is no longer in existence as we know it. Um, it was what Digitas came along, and then and the publicists came along. Well, yeah. What happened was I. Uh, you know, we had it public. We did some acquisitions. Then the dot-com thing came out of it. We actually did really well financially through the dot-com bust. That's when we hired, you know, that's when new CFO, new CEO. I stayed don't on. Don't Frank chairman. came on? Came yeah, on board? When, yeah, yeah, that's when Frank came on board. And then uh, um, the problem was I wanted to get out. I was ready to leave. I'd been doing it for long enough. Doug had already left. Yeah. I wasn't enjoying it. Doug that left much earlier, anymore. right? I mean, Doug he left, left right before the IPO. Yeah, um, and you know he was missed, and uh, 
And the new team, just everybody was worn out, and nobody wanted to sort of give it the old, you know, nobody was, nobody could get played, we played such hard defense, surviving those bad years, that when it came to time to start playing offense again, and the management team, and the, I didn't think the agency was capable of doing it, that's when we decided to sell it, and you know, we worked out a pretty good deal with Digitas. Right. The cool thing about Modem is there was only three comp- two companies. Digitas wasn't even one of them. That if you followed the money all the way through from the IPO price, there's only one company that actually sold for uh, kind of more than it traded for on the first day. But the IPO price through to the last sort of dollar of the, of the transaction, uh, it was Modem and Aquanov. Okay. Avenue Way, you did a, yeah. a little bit better than Modem, like, right. like a thousand yeah. times better. Hey, Suzanne, I'm great. What's going on? Uh, not much. I'm taking Cal. I'm okay. taking the alley, and then I'm going to be running around. And... All right. Okay. okay. Super. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, <coughs> but when, so Modem went out at the equivalent of eight because it split. Right. We sold it to Digitas for stock because we thought they could do a better job with you know, we didn't want to sell it for cash. We'd rather have stock in somebody we thought could run it better. And uh, and then it ultimately cashed out at Publicis for when Digitas sold for, uh, I think it was about eight, uh, the equivalent of like uh, 11 or $12. All right. So, you know, it was okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe 10 But, you know, it was it was... It was 20 or 30% higher than what the, the IPO was. It was still a terrible buy, if that's when you bought it, but right. better than every, everybody else went bankrupt. I mean, yeah. there's nobody else. There's a lot of them that went, just went down. Just went down. Yeah. And so what made you uh, think about, because I know you got Tango Modem now, what made you thinking about, you know, putting something else together again? <laughs> well, the, ta- the Tango Modem thing was... Uh, uh, solely a, a byproduct of meeting a good guy in Argentina and living in Argentina and realizing that uh, being bombarded by him, by Matias, into, you know, starting the company. Because when I first went down there, he said, oh, you know, we can do a great job. It was a, you know, a labor arbitrage deal. We can do a great job. Should we put the dog inside? <laughs> She's fine by me. I don't care. Well, what, what made you go down to Argentina in the first place? So you... Modem done, right? Well, no, it was. I, le- I didn't. I left Modem, and a week later, I went to Argentina. There so, was no. There was no. So uh, what was the? I mean, because yeah, I mean, by this point, you had a family, right? Yeah. You had a, so two now kids? we have four kids. Four kids. Sure. So I had, we had our first kid in '95. Left in 2004. Last kid was the first day of 2004. She was like a year and three. She was born in. Uh, when was she born? September of uh, 2002. So she had barely turned three. She was like one month and or one year and four months. Yeah. Anyway, um, the idea of going into Argentina was I wanted to, uh, you know, I didn't want to wait until I was of retirement age to enjoy life again. And I worked, you know, it was it was all fun and all that, but it was, it was a long road. And it was it was relentless. I mean, we had offices all over the world. I was gone all the time. You know, I worked every weekend. I probably worked for a stretch there. You know, 
I was working Christmases. You know, I remember I, I drove my wife crazy. We were doing that IPO. I was on the phone Christmas Day with some guys about the IPO. She some was, guy named Scrooge. She was gonna, yeah, exactly. So you know, she and rightly so. And she was like, "I'm gonna, you know, this is ridiculous." And I was like, "Oh, come, you know, this is important." You know, I, so my perspective was skewed. Yeah. And um, anyway, you know, uh, it, I but I did realize, like, you know it was time to get out and I didn't want to work. And I felt like the only way I was going to get out is if I really got out. Yeah. And I wanted the kids to grow, you know, learn a foreign language, see another culture. I wanted to be able to enjoy where were we going. I want to go to a fun place that was off the beaten path. And in 2004, nobody was going to Argentina. You know, that well, Robert of, Duvall was down there, but that was probably not. He might've been, I think I might've, but he was up in Salta anyway. It doesn't even count. It's kind of like, and, uh, and yeah, we, I went down to Patagonia, you know. So he was north, I was south. Best thing we ever did. Yeah, yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah. What, what did you get? What did you get most out of Argentina? What did your family get most out of Argentina? Um, I think I learned to enjoy not working. Like I really thought that was going to be impossible. I, I literally thought I'm going to go down there, and after six months, I'll probably go crazy. But I'm going to force myself to stay. And after two years, it was like, Jesus, why would you ever go back, you know? Right. I mean, it, was, it's, it's, it sounds a little crazy. Like, most people sort of, you know, spend a lot of time trying to figure out how not to work. And I spent most of my time trying to, to work. Um, now, now it's the opposite. Now I'm not like, I'm not, I'm reformed. <laughs> fully recovered. The therapy work. Uh, the therapy work. But, you know, I remember having, I remember having, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to make that decision. I, when I was... I got to be pretty friendly with the guy who ran Digitas, you know, David Kenny, after they bought it, or before we were, you know, we knew each other pretty Did well. Did he ever see the videos, you know, with the clowns and the, uh, I don't know. You know, all that stuff? I don't know. I don't know. Hope he, he had a sense of humor. He yeah. can, uh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's got a pretty good sense. David's yeah. a great guy. But, you know, he's still really driven, you know, I mean, he, he, he so we were having, uh, a drink in in Manhattan when I was up for one of my visits, and he he asked me how did I do what I did, and I was like, well, you know, you just got to do it. There's no prep. You have to kind of decide that it's just work isn't important anymore. And your ego, if your ego is associated with work, that's the hardest thing to let go of. And uh, I think for a lot of people, you know, uh, and I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. I mean, I'm somewhat jealous of people like that now because I don't have it really in me anymore of, you know, being that driven. It's it's a nice quality to have. But, you know, I think there's probably some truth to the fact that, you know, when you're ready to cash your chips in, you're probably not thinking I did a great job professionally. All right. You know, maybe you do. Maybe. I don't know. I won't. So what you come, what'd you come back for? So Argentina's great. Well, so Argentina why, uh... ran its course. I mean, you know, it was like if we did, the kids were getting of age that if we didn't leave when we did, you know, they were all going to be in high school. We had to get back. Yeah. I didn't want to drag three kids in high school back to a whole other place. So we got seven and a half great years out of it. Yeah. Took a, you know, great trip around the world when we came back, got back here, and it's like we never left. Right, right. Was that uh, well, hard, hard adjusting back to life stateside? Yeah, you know, um, that's, I don't know. I culturally, would, it's a lot different here. Well, yeah, the culturally, it's it's different, but we came from it, so it's no yeah. surprises. So I wouldn't say the adjustment's hard. I think the the enjoyment is a little less. I did think I would start working 
a lot more than I am now when we came back, and that's been hard. That's been an adjustment I haven't been able to make. Right. Uh, I haven't found anything that compelling. I haven't found it in myself to go start something crazy new again. But on the other hand, you know, I'm having a, a nice time. Because dogs can open any door. It's like safe. That dog's a safe cracker. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so uh, it's, it, you know, it's it's been good. It's been, it's nice to be back. You know, I'm. I'm, uh, I, I miss parts of Argentina, but I was ready to, to leave, too. We had kind of, you know, I didn't, Argentina's a different place here. It's the other extreme in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if there is something out there that could entice you back to the working world, what would it have to be? You know, where, where I mean, it's not, not to say that you're not working, but what would it have to be to, to, it maybe doesn't exist, but give you the same sense of excitement as you had back in 87 when, when you and Doug said goodbye yeah. to, to CUC. It would have to be in Connecticut. Uh, it would have to be with great people. And it would have to be... Um, it would have to be cool. You know, it would have to be... Um, What's cool, though? I think something that To say the world needs it is bullshit. I mean, the world doesn't need advertising. That's what we did with modem. I mean, the economy needs it, but you know, it doesn't necessarily make the world a better place. I think it would have to be um, if it, you know, it's one of those things you know, you'll know it when you see it. Um, you know, like the guys down here, like if I had gotten involved with the guys who did kayak, you know, down in Norwalk, that, that kind of thing would be, would have been a fun, great thing to do. It's really more about the first three things, I guess, than it is about, you know, it just has to be something that's fairly compelling. I don't want to go start a company that does negative option, you know, um, uh, membership deals. Like right. see you, you know, stuff that... Well, you're going to have regulators breathing down your neck. Right. Not compelling. Not that it, yeah, you can make a fortune doing that, but you know, it's not something you're necessarily going to want to tell people you do at a cocktail party. Right, right. You know, I'd like to get into, uh, uh, I might have a, you know, I keep saying I've written chapters, you know, I've written a bunch of stories about those days that are sort of sitting in a folder. Um, I just showed it to Denise Caruso, as a matter of fact, the other day, and she's like, you really should write about this stuff more. So maybe I'll do that, but you know I've been saying maybe I'll do that since I went to Argentina. I don't know. There's a discipline involved in writing a book. Huge, <laughs> huge. But you know, I mean, I just get know. a ghostwriter. No, no, no. That that that's bullshit. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I can write. I know how to write. I just don't have any discipline. <laughs> you need Mr. Miyagi in your life, then. Who? Mr. Miyagi. Come on. Yeah, karate Kid reference. Come on. Oh, that the, Daniel the, 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 Pat yeah. Morita. He was Shit, also uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was he also on Happy Days? Yeah. Al, not Al. Albert. He was the dude who worked at the uh, fast food joint, right? At the wasn't he the guy behind the counter? On Happy Days. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I never made that connection before. But he couldn't catch a fly, a fly in his chopsticks. He had to wait for Daniel Larusso to do that. See, now I'm going way over your head on the no, Karate I, Kid references. Not even interesting. Not even. <laughs> not even. No. 
Not that any of, <laughs> any of this has been interesting. Oh, come on. But that's not interesting. Me. The silver oak has been interesting. The silver oak has been The flavor fantastic. profile is, yeah. is delicious. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that. I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, we'll see. I'd love to, I would like to get back into something, but it's got to have to be. I am very convinced that it's going to be something that I have to start again. It yeah. kind of gets back to that whole deal. And I'm just not, I, there's other, there is some other stuff going on family-wise that just, I don't have the bandwidth to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We can end on that note if you like. Or on that step. I think we should finish the wine, shut off the computer. Let's shut off the computer. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening, if anyone indeed is. Did anybody? All right. Goodbye. Hello. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe.